regulated. One, two, one, two, three, four. This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages and casino gambling. Now together, we're regulated. Welcome back to Regulated. Tony and I are here again this week. This week, we're going to be talking about online betting. Tony, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Bax. How are you? I'm doing excellent. So you want to go ahead and kick us off with what your story of the week is? Yeah, this is actually a press release directly from the American Gaming Association. And I thought it showed some interesting strategy and positioning. So I wanted to share it from yesterday morning. We're recording this on Friday. So this is from September 19, 2019. The American Gaming Association donates $100,000 to new research fund on sports wagering. The AGA has contributed 100K as a founding donor of the National Center for Responsible Gaming's new fund to support research on sports, sports wagering. The fund is the first in the nation dedicated solely to studying the impact of sports wagering on American bettors since the Supreme Court overturned the federal ban on sports betting in May of 2018. Research supported by the NCRG's fund will equip operators, policymakers, and more than 4,000 regulators across the country with science-based evidence to assess and design gaming provisions and policies that protect consumers and prioritize responsible gaming above all else. There's a quote from Bill Miller. He's the president and CEO of the association. The expansion of legal regulated sports betting has made it increasingly important that responsible gaming is not only a significant priority in new gaming markets, but that we also continue to deepen our understanding of effective responsible gaming practices. The next piece is important too. Who else is, has joined the AGA as a donor? Uh, MGM Resorts International is one. Association members, William Hill US, GVC Holdings PLC, IGT and Hard Rock International have also made significant donations, described as significant donations. And of course, NASCAR made some news a little bit earlier in the week where they chipped in a substantial donation as well. And, and people have been sort of remarking about NASCAR's potential as a sports, uh, as, a, as a betting sport, some of the different structures and creative structures you can put in place around car racing. Last quote from the executive director of the National Center for Responsible Gaming, Dr. Russell Santa, this fund is especially significant because it will open up research in a previously understudied field in the United States, defining what we know about the effects of sports wagering for years to come. With new opportunities for legal sports betting around the country, policymakers, practitioners, the entire industry, and the public will benefit from expanding our knowledge on this issue. Here's why I bring up this story. I think it shows an interesting contrast between rapid expansion of a previously forbidden product that's sort of a, a component of a mature, established industry that, that thinks long-term and, and looks at responsibility as an obligation and rapid expansion of something that's a little bit more, uh, excuse me, a little bit more undeveloped like magic mushrooms. So, you know, we discussed in recent episodes the potential for the rapid expansion of mushrooms and other psychedelics and how some of the loose regulations that may result from that speed could eventually hurt the movement. And, and, and the thinking, my thinking on this is that those loose regulations could increase the risk of a series of health issues, which could hamstring the movement's future success. 
you know, it's really interesting to look at a mature industry that's also managing the growth of a forbidden product or previously forbidden product. Even though I'm not equating the risk of mushrooms with sports betting, of course, but look at how strategically they're supporting that growth with initiatives that are designed to help protect the welfare of patrons. And, you know, looking at the amount of funding that's going into this and sort of the history, uh, how seriously the gambling industry has taken responsible gaming, I, I suspect that this initiative will do a lot to help protect consumers. And most importantly, perhaps for the AGA, protect the industry's long term health. And as we know, if there are real world benefits to something like this, there's going to be PR benefits. So I, I think this is a lesson for people in the psychedelic movement about how to pace yourself and how there's sometimes scaffolding required to support that rapid growth. And I think it's going to be really interesting when you see a trade association or sort of a national coordinated advocacy group form around psychedelics and how effective they can be in, in providing that scaffolding in that, in that sector as well. I think it's certainly an indication of sophistication in the sense that these companies are learning these types of initiatives are excellent sources of earned media. So they're able to get their name out there. They're able to get their brand out there, or at least the the industry, raise industry awareness, but in a way that really has nothing to do with direct consumer advertising. This is our product. This is why you should buy it. It, it's in a sense, these guys are putting themselves in front of potential consumers uh, and, and mitigating some of the negative stories from people who don't necessarily like what they're doing. Because in the first place, if you're in the sin industry, you, you tend to be something that has historically either been illegal or tends to be stigmatized, such as gambling. And coming out and getting out in front of an issue like gambling addiction or you know, over gambling to the point where you're spending way too much of your your and your family's money, right? It's important for these industries to address that head on. Then there's also the liability piece where you, you have a societal negative where you have people who are going into into casinos or, or are gambling online. And there are some people who just can't handle it. And as we're learning more about um, psychology and neurology and just kind of the science of addiction, it's generally recognized that, that for some people, this can have extremely negative ramifications in their life. And so in addition to the positive earned media and the, the positive sentiment that people have about about people in the gambling industry getting out there and, and raising awareness about a potential negative. There's also liability mitigation where if you're in a situation where you're, you, you never want to be in the situation of big tobacco, where you have an entire industry that was aware of this tremendous societal negative and not only suppress that information, but actively harness that negative in order to make more money. So what I think the marijuana industry has learned, the alcohol industry has learned, and, and casino and gaming industry is, is learning and, and seems to have learned, is that you take one of these societal negatives and you, you create not-for-profits or you give charitably to groups that are trying to address that, that negative. And then it actually benefits you because you, everybody, you're not hiding the ball, right? Everybody knows that there's a problem here. And you're able to build your brand while you're addressing that negative. So it's a win-win. Right. So Tony, to me, it reminds me a lot of when, I, when you were reading the story and, and I was familiar with the topic, it, it reminds me a lot of 
the commercials you see for Bud Light or for Captain Morgan where they're drive responsibly ads, right? So it, it's coming out against something everybody agrees is bad, which is drunk driving. But in a sense, it's a Bud Light commercial, but it's it's harnessing this this social negative in order to almost spin and and be do good for society, but also build brand awareness and, and build industry awareness. So do, do you think that this is coming from a place of sincere want it, wanting to do better? Or, or do you think of this as more of a corporate strategy in order to deal with a, an issue head on, but really try to mitigate some of the downside risk? That's a great question. And yeah, it is easy to be cynical when you look at sort of large corporations that do well financially and their responsibility efforts and their corporate citizenship. But one thing I will say for the AGA and for the gaming issue is that these companies and you know the major members of the the American Gaming Association and also Bill Miller himself if you follow him on Twitter if you follow what the association does on a weekly monthly quarterly basis they really invest a lot of time and money into responsible gaming so you know I wouldn't ascribe there's 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 obviously a, a very substantial PR effect here but they're not excuse my language they're not half assing it right they're showing, they're demonstrating a real commitment to this issue, and they're putting in the time, the shoe leather, and the money to support that. So, you know, I don't care why they're doing it, but I think the the manner with which they are doing it shows a real commitment that's beyond PR hit. It's interesting that we landed on this topic today because my topic had something very much to do with gambling as well. And this one is piggybacking off of the story that we did last week, where we interviewed Dylan Conley and, and about his work up in Providence. And one of the interesting characters that I was reading about while I was researching Providence, Rhode Island and its nightclub scene is a man named Dick Shappy, who owns a strip club called the Cadillac Lounge. And one of the stories about the Cadillac Lounge that was really interesting to me was that they're planning on putting essentially a sports book into their strip club. Now, super big caveat here that there's actually going to be no gambling taking place at the strip club, or at least that's not the plan now. The plan is to take advantage of the state's new online sports betting bill that allows for citizens in Rhode Island to go to the local casino, activate an online app, and then they can do sports gambling anywhere in the state as long as they're within that geotagged area within Rhode Island. And so what Dick Shappy wants to do is he takes this very successful strip club that he has in Providence and take a chunk of that strip club, convert it to a sports bar, put plugs for iPhone and Android chargers all around the area and market it exclusively as this is an online hub for you to come in, look at naked women, watch sports, and gamble till your heart's content. Tony, you have any thoughts on that? Because uh, uh, it's either extremely interesting or just a huge regulatory heartburn. Well, I, no, I have no regulatory heartburn, and, and let me tell you why. You know, you mentioned that these are folks that are going to be using the mobile app through the state's legal process, so they could do it from you know their bathtub or from their office or from a BW3s, let's say. And speaking of BW3s, we actually have some precedent for similar maneuvers. When Daily Fantasy Sports took off two or three years ago, 
you started seeing restaurant chains like a BW3s and, and like local sports bars starting to cater their television coverage and their physical location around the fact that people want to be there on the weekend with their friends from Daily Fantasy, with their friends from the regular fantasy football team, with a tablet maybe, with their phones out. So yeah, you need plugs. You need to have an information screen that shows all the Daily Fantasy points that are going on. So this is just a natural extension of, of the, what happened with Daily Fantasy in a more, you know, in corporate restaurants and local chains. I think this is just a natural extension. And this story is obviously made new you know, headlines because, you know, this person is a prominent entrepreneur and this is a, a very particular type of establishment. But I think the general principle here, catering to what your customers naturally want to do, I think it makes a lot of sense. Isn't it crazy how we get to the places we get from regulatory evolution from just the most unexpected places? So with cannabis and the legalization movement, it came out of the the medical marijuana movement, right? So rather than this counterculture legalize it movement, it came from seeing progress with patients with intractable epilepsy as you know, we saw in Sanjay Gupta's weed and this this whole movement came out of a very almost niche application from a medical perspective. And, and that's where the momentum came from. And with this, with online sports betting, which is a, a huge national trending regulatory issue, it basically came out of fantasy football, right? You have these this explosion of, of acceptance about sports betting because you had back in the 90s, these guys who were doing fantasy baseball, fantasy football. Rotisserie. Uh, Bill Simmons talks about doing it in the 80s where they were actually mailing it to each each other, right? No, I, I remember those days when I when I first heard about fantasy football in probably 1996. It was paper based, and the, and then like in 97, 98, or 99, probably I think Yahoo Sports started doing fantasy. If I'm remembering this correctly, yeah, you are somewhere around 99, 2000, 98. Yahoo Sports started doing fantasy sports, and that's when it. That's when my friends and I actually started doing it, even though I think we we had heard of rotisserie leagues before. Right. So Yahoo Sports and then ESPN gets involved. You have these right. huge, very lucrative pieces of these of these businesses that got into creating tools and platforms. Culturally, it got a bunch of people together, millions of people all over the country, either online or in many cases, as a, the first thing I thought of when you're talking about BW3s was people have draft parties. They they show up, 20 guys are sitting at, or, or women too, are sitting at a table at BW3s. And th- these these places, these big sports bars all have Wi-Fi so that they can access and do their drafts there. And then that, of course, led to FanDuel and these daily fantasy contests that are now crossing that line between online sports betting and and what was just fantasy. And now you've just full on legalized it because people couldn't deal with FanDuel and DraftKings and and that that gray area of law. Christian, I want to read something to you. Sure. Um, This is from Florida's own Miller's Ale House. This is their fantasy football draft package. And and this this might be where we record our next podcast, just full disclosure. (laughs) The draft party package includes 50 fresh chicken wings, two Tex-Mex chicken nachos, two warm Bavarian pretzels, two flatbreads of your choice, two fully loaded cheese fries, two Zingers mountain melts, six pitchers of Miller Lite, a fantasy draft kit, and access to the wireless internet, $170. And then when you go to the Cadillac Lounge, I, I don't want no, I don't want to hear what the, about the bonuses at the Cadillac Lounge. <laughs> 
But so this is this is what I love. This is American entrepreneurship where Dick Shappy is at home reading this and saying, I want to get in on this. And so he's taking it to the next to the what what Americans do, right? Where if you like a triple cheeseburger, let's put some bacon on top of that triple cheeseburger in Rhode Island in Providence. Dick Shappy's saying, you guys like sports betting? You like doing it at a sports bar? How about you do it at a sports bar that's also a strip club? And so I, when I was reading this, the, the funniest thing about this whole story to me is when I Googled Dick Shappy, because I, I read all about him. I feel like I know the guy because I've, I've been read so much about the Cadillac Lounge because they are a player in the Providence nightclub scene. And that's what our last podcast was about. But when you Google Dick Shappy, you don't see anything about the Cadillac Lounge, despite the fact that it's in the news all the time for at least three or four Google pages on the, on the search tool. Instead, it's like nothing but pictures of him and Jay Leno because Dick Shappy is yeah, a celebrity in the, in the car refurbishment, like old classic car scene. It, it was it was crazy. Talk about a renaissance, man. You have this kind of pioneering entrepreneur in Rhode Island, at least in the strip club and nightclub circuit. And then he's also got this whole different career, which is restoring and selling and refurbishing and, and brokering these classic cars. So it seems like a really interesting guy. And, and I, I'd love to get him on. I, I think we have to at some point get Dick Shappy on the regulated pod. Well, you you mentioned uh, whether I had any regulatory heartburn over this one, and I want to read this statement from the Rhode Island Department of Revenue. Yeah, and, and we can just imagine the 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 tone of voice, the look on the face of Paul Grimaldi, the the representative there. Anyone who properly registers and activates a Rhode Island mobile sports betting account can place a wager anywhere within the state's boundaries. Grimaldi said that the Rhode Island lottery does not endorse visits to particular establishments apart from casinos. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll show you, he's like, why? I cannot believe I'm getting a call about this today. <laughs> I think I think it lowers my regulatory heartburn a great deal the more I think about it. If you are creating these gambling hubs around businesses that are licensed, insured, on regulatory radar for state and local regulators. Because as we learned last week, Providence has a established licensing board that takes can take a pretty heavy-handed approach if you get sideways with local ordinances. And then you have, on top of that, the state regulators, where if you're Dick Shappy or if you're any strip club owner or even a sports bar owner and you have a liquor license you have a lot of skin in the game. And if you're doing something inappropriate and you lose that liquor license, that's a really huge loss to your business. Yeah. And under that sort of municipal board of, of liquor license structure, what you what you see sometimes is when there's an issue at a sort of a major operator's location, you see sometimes that all of their liquor licenses get suspended, which is something that, something that could happen to you. So people have a lot of skin in the game, to your point. How do you think from a macro perspective that sports betting is is progressing do you think what what talk a little bit about the momentum that you've seen in that industry well it's definitely an industry that's viable and in one of the states that i've been looking at with interest is new jersey since the state's first bets were taken back in june of 2018 new jersey's done 3.2 billion dollars in sports betting handle that's according to the ap in an article from july of 2019 and they continue to take a bigger share 
and that makes sense because they're well positioned. But when you look at just the growth of of sports betting, I mean, it's this is a real thing. This is not this is not snake oil. This is not necessarily a tr- a trend uh, in the sense that trendy, like it's going away. This is something that seems to be moving up and to the right on the charts, and it looks like it's going to continue to do so. A recent tweet from the American Gaming Association noted that American bettors have legally wagered more than $10 billion on sports since the fall of May 2018. And $625 of that is just straight up profit in in the hands of of business owners, right? So $10 is the amount that's actually bet. And so obviously online sports books aren't taking $10 billion, but they're getting a percentage of that. And so that's huge. $625 million in just straight profit is is incredibly high. Right. So what's interesting to me is how state regulators across the country respond to this stimulus in the future. Because to me, you have this situation that's similar to when a decade ago, online retailers were exploding. See the rise of Amazon from the early 2000s through the behemoth that it is today. One of the issues that states struggled with and still struggle with is is charging sales tax. So you lose all of these profit centers uh, or revenue sources for the state. You know, Every shopping mall that's going out of business is hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales tax that's just gone. And you're losing that to these online businesses that don't necessarily have a home in your state. So you have gambling that's going to be conducted within these states. And and don't mistake the the fact that just because there's geotags, people can figure out a way around those geotags in order to make it seem like they're operating. Christian, Christian, look, you know, as a as a uh, an attorney engaged in representation in the gaming industry from time to time, I would I would push back on that and say that geotagging works 100% of the time. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there. Geotagging is an adequate s- solution to determining where patrons can gamble and cannot. So I just that's my official <laughs> statement on the topic. <laughs> As someone who may or may not have pirated a couple of Game of Thrones episodes in my day, for those listening at home, there are these things called VPNs where you can download and they make it seem like you're projecting yourself into a different part of the world. If someone looking in and seeing where my internet access is coming from could think I'm in Bern, Switzerland, if I have if I have a B- VPN. So if you're sitting in North Dakota, and obviously we're not advocating that you do this, or or and, and Tony's position is that, that it's not even possible, but in the hypothetical, it, that's one of the things that people are kind of exploring if they don't have access to these online tools. I say that just because you have this expansion and you have very practical and relatively easy ways for people to attempt to circumvent that expansion. So the regulatory response to that stimulus, it's usually a bad idea with it just becoming more heavy handed or just ignoring the problem. The more appropriate solution seems to be we have this situation. The Internet has now collapsed a lot of these state regulatory walls. So now we need to adapt and evolve to create a new regulatory model. So Tony, have you seen any best practices and approaches for states dealing with this? Because I know Rhode Island has an approach. I know Nevada has an approach. I know you talked about New Jersey has an approach as well. Well, I'm glad you asked me about New Jersey um, because they actually do have an interesting approach. And I understand that it's something that they're continuing to, to look at. And so they actually have a downloadable browser plugin. Or excuse me, this isn't a regulatory solution. This is what some of the the operators in New Jersey are using. 
where there's a there's a downloadable plugin, I guess is it that every new player has to download before they can begin betting. And it it apparently does a, a better job of tracking the location of the actual device, VPN or not. But I, I don't know, you know, I was I was being a little bit flip earlier. I don't know if this solution is perfect, but I do know that regulators and operators are looking at it very closely. And getting back to the corporate responsibility thing, right? Being a good corporate citizen, these operators, look, they want to make money. Don't get them wrong. But they also understand that they have to take measures to protect their product. They cannot be found in a, uh, in a, by an inspector or by, through an investigation to have 65% of their handle coming from out of state because they left the back door open, something that's preventable. So these, down, these types of downloadable plugins and other technology-based solutions, you're going to see regulators continue to require it and push for it, and you're going to see operators continue to, to test it, study it, and investigate. One of the interesting solutions is actually Rhode Island, where they require you to physically go to this one specific casino in order to activate your app. And so at least at some point, you have physically been present in that state in order to turn that system on. Even if you aren't necessarily, if you're figuring out a way around the, the physical presence in Rhode Island in the future. Well, I must say, I, I haven't looked at Rhode Island's statute, but I, I would like to say congratulations to the lobbyist that got their client a mandatory check-in from every sports better in the state. That's, that's what I was thinking. That's really good I, work. <laughs> So specifically, we're talking about the Twin Rivers Casino uh, casinos in Lincoln and Tiverton. Whoever the lobbyist is for Twin Rivers Casinos, they, they're probably doing quite well for themselves. But pat on the back, regulated pat on the back for inserting yourself into the law like that. Think about that. Every single person who wants to do online sports betting has to physically go to the Twin Rivers Casinos. It almost reminds me a little bit of, of the medical marijuana cards in a sense that there's this regulatory need, obviously not in Florida. So in Florida, this is a it, it's a it's very prescriptive, and there's an ongoing involvement of the physician in in what you're doing. But for some of the other states where there's no prescriptive nature in it, it's just a recommendation from a physician where they write on a piece of paper, this physician has a qualifying condition. I mean, this patient has a qualifying condition. They can use cannabis, and then they get their card. There's this minimum threshold of regulatory involvement, almost on, as a regulator, a good faith attempt to control something that's virtually uncontrollable in the sense that here you have, okay, they're physically present, they show ID, they're in Rhode Island. And then if they're abusing the system two years from now by using a VPN out of Bulgaria, you know that's really hard to regulate, but at least we did something that can cover our our butts and say that we we tried. Right, right. There's actually it's interesting that we bring up Rhode Island because they just expanded that that app, their sports betting opportunity to a second casino and that just came out yesterday through AP. So this is something that they're continuing to expand and continuing to look at. So that's interesting. It's a really interesting regulatory issue in an area of law that that admittedly, I, I haven't had that much much exposure to it, but I've really enjoyed researching. And I'd, I'd like to do more shows. And personally and professionally, I'm going to continue to follow the career of Dick Shappy quite closely. One of the, <laughs> the great thing is that every, so reporters in 2019, there's one story that'll come out on the AP or, or in Florida, we have News Service of Florida, where reporters on the ground who actually know something about the topic are writing these 
10 paragraphs on the story and then the local news outlets take those 10 paragraphs and kind of tweak them in order to use them in their own periodicals. So a lot of news stories are pretty similar in, in the body, but the introduction and conclusion and, and the quotes in the middle of them tend to be mixed up a little bit. But interestingly, I don't know if I've seen this to the degree that I've seen it with Dick Shappy, but every single news story that I read about this casino issue in Dick Shappy ended with the same quote, which was Dick Shappy saying, we're going to make strip clubs great again. <laughs> well, look, at, at least he has message discipline. So I'll give him that. With that, I think we're done for this week of Regulated. Until next week, please, everyone, try to stay compliant. 